open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 4. If you are at home in your living room or gathered with family, grab a Bible, open it to the, the book of Acts in the New Testament. This is the story of God's continuing work through Jesus, the outpouring of God's Spirit sending the church on mission. So I'm going to read from Acts 4, verse 32, into chapter 5, because while there's a chapter break, there's a big number 5 in my Bible. That was added much later, just so that you could find where we're turning. This is one continuous story showing us the ministry of the church. Listen to the Word of God, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he, has it, as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for, for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at, all, are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man who came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of God. Let me pray that he would apply it to our hearts and lives. Father, we are quick, perhaps, to shrug off any fear when we come into your presence. And so, Lord, let us feel the weight of this biblical passage the truth that you are the God who brings judgment. Lord, for those that are living in sin without a knowledge of you, bring them to a place of confession, a place where they would put their faith in you. Lord, for those who claim to follow after Jesus as a Christian and yet live in sin, Lord, I pray that they would find gospel hope in your word. Lord, make us as a church bold in announcing the gospel, generous in caring for one another. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have an attic, it's probably filled with junk. 
I mean, there might be some stuff there of sentimental value, but perhaps very little of monetary value. Now, it was reported this week that a family in New Jersey found a vintage signed baseball card collection worth millions. James Missioni died in March. He was 97 years old, and he had an amazing collection of baseball memorabilia. He had a a Babe Ruth card from 1933, kind of the showcase of his collection, signed by the Hall of Famer. That card is worth an estimated $100,000. And in his collection, he has six of them. He has cards signed by Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox. But the family, they, they had no idea of this collection, of its greatness. Whenever their Uncle Jimmy, when, it, when they'd ask him, you know, what's it worth? What should we do with it? He, he, he would just shrug it off and say, you'll figure it out when I'm gone. Millions of dollars waiting in the attic. Now, I have to confess, I love this kind of story. I mean, like, I probably for the next 52 weeks could just tell you this kind of story of somebody finding money in a, in a couch they bought at a thrift shop, finding money in the walls of their house during renovations. I, I love these kind of stories. Now, maybe the, the baseball card collector in me as a kid, who I thought my collection was going to be worth millions, I mean, I literally can't give it away to my children or nieces and nephews. They don't want any of it. And so maybe I, 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 I sentimentally have this idea that, that collecting something like that would be worth money. But, but maybe it's actually a little more selfish. I mean, maybe part of the reason that I love this kind of story is I just, I just daydream, boy, what would I do if I found millions of dollars in the attic? I think of the ways that I could spend it. And, and my tendency is to think of how I would spend it on myself. Or even if I, even if I decided, well, you know, the best way to, to, to utilize millions of dollars would be to put it in the bank. But again, I would be thinking of myself, that I could, could gain some measure of control over my life, that I could be free of worry of financial ruin. And yet, when we turn to the way the early church used their wealth, they had the opposite reaction of my own heart. I'm tempted to daydream, what could I do for me? And this passage shows us that their attitude was, how could I use the gifts I have for others, for the mission of the church, for the mutual care of fellow believers. Look look back with me at chapter 4, verse 32, this description of the church, a church that is described as, as all the believers were one in heart and mind, united together, emotionally, intellectually, relationally, spiritually connected. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. I mean, this is the church that we we saw last week in this series, And, and you can look back at verse 31. I didn't read this to you this morning. This is the church that, seeing the ministry of the gospel, felt the Holy Spirit with power shake the room that they were in and that they were bold in speaking the word of God. And so the description continues, well, how did they treat one another with generosity, with care? So that verse 34, we get the the conclusion, there were no needy persons among them. And that's the language of the Old Testament, of the book of Deuteronomy. As the people of God were going into the land, God gave them a promise that because he was going to meet their needs, that there should be no needy left among them. 
that because of the promises and provisions of God, they should be able to care for one another. And so Deuteronomy 15.4 offers that picture, there shall be no poor among you. And so we're seeing a glimpse of that here because the people are being generous, going through the work of selling property at great expense, taking the time to do that work so that others, the needs of others would be met. And yet, as the passage continues, and remember, we just we move right past the, the chapter divisions because when Luke wrote this account, he didn't, he didn't put the numbers in for us. Those were added much later just so that you could turn in your Bible and find it. It's just a, a guide to get us to the right page because we have then the, the clear contrast of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you've grown up in church, if you've been to Sunday school, you've heard the lesson, and so you already know what's going to happen. You already, in hearing the names Ananias and Sapphira, know the outcome. But remember, for those experiencing this, all that they could see was the apparent generosity of Ananias and Sapphira, doing what many had done before, bringing at great expense to themselves a gift and laying it at the apostles' feet. In humility, coming to the apostles to meet the needs of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, Luke shows us not merely their actions, but their very attitudes. He shows us their hearts. He shows us what their desires were. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. After they've sold this piece of property, with his wife's full knowledge, verse 2 tells us, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So that when he brings this gift, Peter, a prophet filled with the God's Spirit, is able to see the very heart of Ananias and exposes his sin. Look at, look at the harsh language of verse 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? See, but notice with me, the sin is not that he kept some of the money. The very next verse, verse 4, says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? See, the sin isn't that, that they held back because we don't know how much land that they sold. We don't know how much money they were bringing. But when we give, God looks at our hearts, our attitudes. And you can think with me of the woman that Jesus watched at the temple courts bring this poor woman in and put in the very little that she had. And Jesus exalted her because of the generosity of her heart, even though men who came after her put in much more in terms of overall wealth, but it cost them very little. See, it's less about how much is given and much more about the attitudes of our hearts. So that Peter looks at Ananias and says, how is it that Satan has so filled your Remember, the opening chapters here of the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit filling the church. And so the, the language here is, is showing a sharp and stark contrast that Ananias, lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit, is following after Satan's purposes. And so then verse 5 tells us what you already knew knowing their names, Ananias and Sapphira, but what would have been horrifically shocking to those witnessing it. Verse 5 says, When Ananias heard this, the judgment of Peter, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all 
who heard what had happened. Unless we think that, well, maybe, maybe he had some sort of health problem before he came in and just sort of the shock of what happened. No, it, it's repeated, right? When Sapphira comes in, when she is given the chance to tell the truth, but again chooses to lie. Peter says to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? She's committing the same sin, which isn't the sin of holding back some of the money. It would have been theirs to hold back. It's the sin of, of pretending to give it all. And so verse 10 repeats the judgment. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And verse 11 reiterates the fear, the warning of judgment. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, admittedly, this passage feels like it, it breaks up the excitement and flow of these early chapters of Acts. We've seen the church filled with God's power preach the gospel and thousands be added to the church. Then we saw the church see the miracles happen of a man who, who jumps up giving praise to God, Peter and John boldly announcing gospel hope even in the face of the threat that came to them from the Sanhedrin. And now this seems to take the wind out of the sails by exposing sin here. See, God in this passage might feel to us as we read it like he's just kind of cranky. Like, did you just catch God on a bad day? Like, why is this that big of deal? Because the instant judgment, it, it happens immediately, strikes us as completely unfair. That God is out of control. He can't be trusted. But it's helpful to us to remember that an immediate moment of judgment, an instant response of judgment, is rare in Scripture. The, the ordinary way that God deals with us is he is patient with us. That God waits so that we have time to repent. And yet the instant judgment should be a warning to each of us. It, the, the, the response of fear is a legitimate and right response. Because if we're honest, then we realize every one of us stands under the judgment of God that we deserve immediate and instant judgment. The, the Bible could have begun with the great story of creation and then Adam and Eve's fall, and then it just ends at Genesis 3. You, well, it wouldn't have been written down, and you wouldn't be reading it because it would just be done. See, God could have brought judgment. Every one of us deserves immediate judgment. Any patience of God shows us his mercy. See, but when we actually, when, when we think about it, we, we really need a God not just of mercy, but of justice, of judgment. Because otherwise, that which would have been unseen by the church would have gone unpunished. If God doesn't intervene, and thankfully for most of us, he doesn't immediately, instantaneously intervene, he is patient with us. But there is coming a day when all of us will stand before God to face judgment. And, and, and culturally, we see the, the pain of neighbors who feel like there is no justice, there is nothing right, that no one is looking, no one is watching, nothing can be done. And as believers, yes, we pursue justice, but we also recognize that ultimately vengeance belongs to God. That we know no one gets away with anything in this life, which is good news for us as sufferers, as those who have suffered because of the sin of others, but it's also a, a warning to us as sinners that we deserve the punishment 
that comes upon Ananias and Sapphira. We have rebelled against God. We have lied to God. Our hurt, our, our, the pain we have caused others is a sin against God. And notice that, the, again, the issue is less about the external response of Ananias and Sapphira and more about their hearts and their attitudes. And so it's appropriate for us today to recognize what is the church doing? It's being generous in giving financially to meet the needs of others. Our deacons encourage you to continue to give to help meet the needs of others. Our elders encourage you to give toward the work of mission so that others would hear the gospel. And so it's appropriate for us to say that, that an application of this passage is that you should give generously, even giving so that it costs something. But, but we need to give with generosity for the sake of others, for the mission of the church, for mutual care. Now, I know some of you listening think, oh, great, preacher's talking about money. Like, isn't that, I mean, this is what church is all about. And, and those of you watching at home, I, I, I've told some of you, I said, my lifelong dreams are finally here. I'm now being live streamed. I am now a televangelist. <laughs> See, but the problem is you and, I, you and I know that the reputation that some preachers have is we just want your money. So, but I actually want to tell you it's worse than that. God wants your heart and your life. See, money is just one of the easy ways we can measure that, that we can see what matters most to us. Because the, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira isn't that they were unwilling to be generous to a point. It's that they were using money for themselves. See, so the application actually presses even further than money. It goes to the very ways in which you would do something good so that others would notice you. That you would serve in the church so that others would see you. Yes, maybe not completely selfishly, but you want to be known as the kind of person who serves. So that's the very opposite of the attitude that is right. Ananias and Sapphira want people to know. They want people to think that they have been more generous than they have been. I mean, maybe it was a, a piece of land that everybody knows, that they've all passed by, that everybody, that, that land's been in their family for generations, perhaps. And they think, they sold that? They're giving that? I mean, even if they only got pennies on the dollar, that's an extravagantly generous gift. See, because they're giving not so that others would be helped, they're giving so that others would think them generous. And that's why, why Peter says that their hearts are filled by Satan. And so it's not merely how much money you give. It's the very attitude of your hearts. It's not merely that I'm asking you to serve others. It's the very attitude that you do it with. That you come humbly so that others would see your love and care for them. See, do we serve so that we can meet the needs of others? Or do we serve so that people will see us meeting the needs of others? Now, those of you with a Bible open in front of you, you know that I, I, I skipped a section here. I'm kind of preaching this passage out of order because I jumped to the negative example first, but, but there was a positive example given to us in this passage. And so look with me again at chapter 4, verse 36. We meet a man named Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas. Now that means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is a character that we will see as the, the book of Acts unfolds if you take time to read the rest of the book. 
But he's introduced to us here as Joseph. Now, that's a common name in the first century, and so if you were a, a Joe or a Joey or a Joseph in the first century, you had to go by a nickname. People had to, to come up with a way to distinguish you because the name was so common. And so, so the nickname that is given to this man is the son of encouragement. He's the encourager. That's how he is known because when he gives his gift, he does so entirely to meet the needs of others so that the, the, the needs of the church, the most vulnerable, will be met. Now, he's an encourager not only here in, in Acts chapter 4, but throughout the, the rest of the book. It actually will cost him something to get that kind of title. Because in chapter 9, when others are suspicious of Paul, the former persecutor of the church, it's Barnabas who is sent and who brings him to the apostles and encourages the apostles, exhorts the apostles to say, God has changed this man. You need to use him. Let God use Paul for the sake of the kingdom. When the church needs someone to go from Jerusalem to Antioch, who do they choose to send? They send Barnabas. When the church in Antioch wants to send the first missionaries to cross a, a sea, to take the gospel to a new place, who do they send? They send Barnabas. Now, Barnabas's name is repeated throughout the book of Acts, often in very difficult circumstances, because his generosity, his commitment to the gospel cost him something. Not merely selling a piece of land here, but a willingness to give his entire life for the hope of the gospel. But see, when, when we read his name, we don't hear him called Joseph again. We only know him by the nickname, the encourager. Now, it's not that he's a man without faults. We'll see if, if you read, you find in the book of Galatians that, that he follows Peter at times into sin and needs to be rebuked. But here he's presented to us as an encourager, one who loves others and is generous. Now, if I asked your community group to come up with a nickname for you, the small group with which you meet, what kind of name would they give to you? Would they give you a positive description, a positive title like the encourager? I mean, I'd be afraid to ask my community group, honestly. I mean, I think we'd, I'd be more likely to get the complainer, the grumbler, and yet, how is Barnabas known? I mean, going back and reading this passage, I was reminded, oh, that's right, he has a name. His name's Joseph, but he has an identity. He is the encourager. And so that's how we remember him. Will you let your heart be changed, transformed, so that others see you loving and serving in the church? Now, if you're paying close attention, you realize not only did I skip verses 36 and 37 and going through, but you notice I also skipped verse 33. Not because it was unimportant, because I wanted to save it here till the end. I wanted to highlight the importance of verse 33. Because the passage is showing us the generosity of the church in meeting the needs of others. But verse 33 really anchors it for us, shows us why they can be generous with each other. Look again with me at chapter 4, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. See, so what is the church doing? The church is engaged in its mission of boldly proclaiming the gospel. What is the core of that gospel message? It's the resurrection of Jesus. But you and I know that when we read the sermons in the book of Acts, they're not only jumping ahead to the end of the story, Jesus' resurrection, they tell the whole thing. 
They remind us that we are sinners who could not save ourselves, that Jesus was crucified because of our sin, that he paid the penalty for our sins. But then the story exalts in the glorious hope, the centrality of the resurrection, the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to, pay the, to prove that our sins have been paid for, to, to declare Jesus to be the one who is justified in the sight of God, righteous and holy and perfect. And Jesus as the ascended Lord. See, this is what changes a man like Barnabas. He's, he's, he's not there in his own heart. Yes, I mean, maybe he was generally a nice guy before this. But the reason we call him the encourager is because his life has been transformed by this resurrection hope. See, what is the story of the gospel given to us? It's the story of Jesus in extravagant riches humbling himself, giving up everything for us. Jesus, who has all the glory of heaven, the creator of everything, became a tiny infant. Those of you in the room got to, got to hear, the. I mean, part of the joy of being back together is you get to hear one another in the space. And we had a, a little one with us who was making noise, and that's a reminder to us that the, the church, when we're gathered together, we, we are here together, but it's also a reminder that God himself became that helpless dependent upon mother and father for everything. Jesus gave everything for us. And not only did he become poor, but he was humbled and led to a cross. See, this is where your heart can be transformed, from someone who was a grumbler to somebody who can become an encourager, from someone who was selfish to somebody who can be generous. Because our generosity doesn't spring from our own righteous hearts but from hearts transformed by this gospel message. So that the church is described as, a, as the, the church that has the power of the Holy Spirit, testifying to the truth of the resurrection, and that much grace was upon them all. See, that's the description of the church. The grace of God, the undeserved favor of God being upon each of us, upon us collectively. That we know that God's mercy, the forgiveness of sins has been given to us, but even more than that, the extravagant wealth of God's kingdom is ours. And so we can be generous because God has been generous to us. We can love one another because God has shown his love to us. We can share this gospel message because we realize all that God has done for us. Hearts filled not with selfishness. Hearts filled not with the schemes of Satan, but hearts filled with the love of God, with his grace upon us. Hearts full of God's grace. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is hard for us to listen to because we don't want to admit we're sinners. We, at times, just want to be reminded that, that we're doing okay. And so, Lord, I thank you that your word is honest enough to show us our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion. Lord, for those who have listened to your word or who will hear it later today or have it shared with them this week, Lord, I pray that in hearing your word read and preached, in hearing your truth spoken and sung, that they would be brought to a place where they find forgiveness in you. Lord, thank you for the generosity that you've shown to us, the riches that Christ gave up to forgive us our sins, the great cost to buy our freedom from sin. Father, we give you praise and thanks 
In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you for gathering here in person. I invite you, if you're here to stand with me, I'm going to send you with the hope of the gospel, with God's word and encouragement. As we attempt to shorten our service, we're going to conclude with the benediction. Go with this blessing. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Amen.